Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're going to continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 to 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, When God is With You. Romans 8, 31, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? I recall singing a number of hymns in church that sound so much like that. God is for us. And as we sing it, we're filled with confidence. Our God is for us. We might also quote Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. God is at all times using his great and infinite resources for the good of his people. What have we to worry? God is for us. Another way of viewing that is to view it from the perspective of God's providential care. God orders all activities in the world for his glory and the well-being of his loved ones. Well, if all that's so, what means this, this suffering that the children of God so often bear? We might sing that God is for us, but how many of us know the peculiar way in which God supports his loved ones? You know, we've been studying the life of Joseph. His family, even though it is called the family of destiny, chosen by God to inherit the blessing of Abraham and become the source of blessing for the whole earth. Well, this is a family that has lost its way. And then in a moment of unbridled hatred and envy, 10 of the brothers sell Joseph into slavery. And meanwhile, Judah leaves the family and becomes deeply immersed into Canaanite culture. The family is slowly being integrated into Canaanite idolatry, sexually promiscuous living, and is losing all sense of the Lord. Had that matter been allowed to go on, the story of the gospel, God's salvation coming into the world would have ended there. And in the meantime, Joseph, the one who fears God and the one who, as Paul would say, God is for him, well, that one, he is sold as a slave. So let's pick up our story. It's from Genesis 39, verses 1 to 6. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate." Let's try to understand the times in which Joseph lived. The year Joseph entered into Egypt was the year 1897 BC. Now, you might wonder how I can be so precise about that date. And that's a story that's more involved than I can get into here. I can, however, say that when one follows the Bible chronology, it is amazingly precise. Well, that being said, We know that Joseph entered into Egypt during what we now call the 12th Egyptian dynasty. Now, that was a time when Egypt was well-established. We know that Pharaoh was encouraging farming and that the nation was expanding its influence in terms of international trade and that literature and art and architecture were all flourishing. And archaeologists have also discovered a novel 
It was written in 1991 BC, just a few years after Joseph entered into Egypt. So these are all signs of an advanced and prosperous culture. And we also know from an Egyptian papyrus. It contains a list of 80 slaves in one Egyptian household. You know, for our purposes, it was the foreign slaves who were given the most skilled jobs and the local Egyptian slaves who were usually assigned to the more demanding and harsh field labor jobs. So from that perspective, what happened to Joseph would not have been that unusual. This is entirely how things were done in that day. And just another little factoid to help us understand the times. You know, Egypt was then experiencing the flowering of her culture. Egypt's military was establishing Egypt's prominence in the region. Vast building projects were being undertaken. New temples were being built and so forth. And Joseph was entering into Egypt when Egypt had developed a genuine swagger, where a great many of the nobility were getting the best foreign slaves to run their household. So Joseph, the young man who is loved by the one true God, is just another one of those highly prized foreign slaves. He's purchased by a man named Potiphar, This man is an aristocrat. He is the captain of the guard. Whatever that actually entailed, he no doubt had an important and an elite status in the nation. It may be that Joseph is a slave. It may be that his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery, but our text says that God was with him. That is, just as God had told Abraham that he would be his God. So also, he is telling Joseph that he will be his God. If the one true God could years later decimate Egypt with 10 plagues, well, we might ask, well, why if Joseph knows that God is for him, is he being sold as a slave? See, isn't it amazing that nowhere in all of Joseph's suffering that we find him asking that question? Rather, he leaves the big questions of his suffering into God's hands. He concerns himself with what he can do now. He gives himself to the task at hand. And we find that God blesses him. And because of the blessing of God, God oversees Joseph's success, and soon Joseph becomes ruler over this nobleman's household. But there is more. Potiphar's household is blessed because of Joseph, and he knows it. See, we remember here that Abraham has a blessing. God will bless Abraham, and furthermore, God will bless all who bless Abraham. And Potiphar, who has blessed Joseph with leadership, will know that the God of this Hebrew slave is now blessing him. And so Joseph rises because God is with him. And there's a principle here, and if we learn from it, we will do well. If you have suffered, let's say you've been fired from your job, or if others have turned against you, and you have suffered as a result, don't you spend the rest of your life with a clenched fist at those who have harmed you, or blame God for allowing it. You know, these are matters that you should entrust to the goodness of God, who has promised you his blessing. Just set your face to doing those things that God has given you to do. Be faithful and await his blessing. In time, God will work out the other things as well. Be content in God's plan for your life right now. All right, all's well. Until the next major blow in Joseph's life. Let's now read verses 6b to 12. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, but he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, before we notice anything else, let's notice that one line, shall we? Verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, I think that at the outset, this is a curious verse. We know that Joseph was raised in Canaan. And as we've seen in our study, the Canaanites were known to be sexually promiscuous. But Joseph had not adopted that attitude. He knows that to commit adultery is to sin. So here's the question. How does he know that? Now, you might remember that even Abraham was willing to sell his wife into a harem. And then years later, he would, at the urging of his wife, take Hagar as his concubine. Well, that was a practice that was widely accepted in that day. Now, I don't think that either Abraham or Sarah saw that matter as a sin. And furthermore, we know that Jacob, Joseph's father, had two wives and two concubines. So, at the very least, polygamy was widely accepted. Now, I know that adultery, well, that's another matter. But we also know that in Joseph's day, the powerful aristocratic women might take on a lover of some kind. It was common. And it might have been that it was easy to see this as another form of advancement for the powerful women of the day. And furthermore, in Joseph's day, there were no Ten Commandments that had not yet been given. But Joseph has a settled awareness of the law of God in his life. All adultery, that is, all relations with another man's wife, no matter the circumstances, it's a sin. Not just against the husband. No, no. For Joseph, the sin is much more serious than that. See, he thinks it's a sin against God. Many years later, David, after he had sinned, would write Psalm 51, and he would say, Against you and you only have I sinned. According to both David and according to Joseph, the ultimate sin is to sin against God. And Joseph will not risk his relationship with God, nor will he risk the blessing of God, and so sin against the one who has blessed him. Psalms of the Seasons is our 2020 Back to the Bible Canada scripture calendar. And it reminds us of so many things. It reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of this creation and the beauty of God's word. A uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Neufeld is placed within the calendar, encouraging each of us to open up our Bibles every day. This is a practice and discipline critical to creating a steadfast foundation for faith. Use your calendar as a reminder to engage in the Bible every day and use the Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in 2020. This resource is filled with encouragement and it's yours for free. Just ask. Simply request your copy today. And perhaps consider a gracious gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Either way, call us for your free calendar at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. It would be over 400 years before God would give the Ten Commandments in which he unequivocally stated that all adultery is sinning against God. How did Joseph know that? You know, I think the answer is that Joseph, he's a man who followed God. He has the law of God hidden in his heart. 
Well, you might remember Paul taught on that very thing. Romans 2, 14 and 15, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That is, there is an innate law of God in every single human being. Well, how much more than Joseph, who intuitively knew that he was created in the image of God and that he had determined to live for this one God, he would know that adultery is always wrong. If you listen to your conscience, a conscience shaped by God, you will know that. But notice how the progression goes. First, Potiphar's wife cast an eye on Joseph. He was, as we say today, he was ripped. And she's giving him hints. She's making the occasional comment, but he not only doesn't respond, he works to avoid her. He knows that in order to win this battle, the best place to make a stand is never to engage in this kind of language. No flirting language. He won't even be alone with her. He won't have more to do with her than is absolutely necessary. But she, being a powerful woman, won't take that. And so she becomes quite brazen. Sleep with me, she says. And at that point, Joseph does something we should all learn. He injects a note of realism into the conversation. He tells her she is the wife of his boss. You're his wife, he tells her. And at that point, that's like pouring cold water on a fire. Oh, how people lie to themselves when they're on the threshold of sexual sin. No, it's, it's just cheating. No, no, it's not. She's another man's wife. I love what Randy Elkhorn did in regard to the temptation of sexual sin. He made out a list of what would happen to him should he commit adultery. Everything from his ruined reputation to his destroyed marriage, to facing his children and letting them know who dad really was, to the harm that would come to his walk with the Lord. He kept that list in front of him. It's cold water on a fire. It's sobering. It jerks our heads back as we face reality for what it is. That's precisely what Joseph does. That is your husband. He has trusted me, and indeed, he needs someone he can trust. And this act would destroy that trust and it would ultimately harm him. But furthermore, the God whom I serve and the God who has blessed your household regards this matter as a great sin. Notice how Joseph just serves it up here. The words come tumbling from his mouth and they have an intent. If he were to say yes to her, well, he could no longer be known as a trusted man of God. But of course, as we know, she wants no part of those protestations. She wants him. And she's living in both a world of evil and a world of illusion. She's lying to him and herself while he tells the truth. And so one day he's alone in the house and she knows it. Unless you miss this part, this is so crucial. God is meticulously sovereign. He watches over his children for good. And he knows that Joseph is now in a vulnerable position. And she comes and grabs Joseph's cloak. And Joseph does what a godly man would do or a godly woman would do in that situation. He simply runs. No more reasoning, no more truth lessons, no more anything. I will not be in your presence alone. If you want to be sexually pure, learn that lesson from Joseph. You commit yourself never to be in a vulnerable place with a member of the opposite sex. Unless the woman is my wife or my daughter or my granddaughter or my sister, I I won't even ride in a car with a woman. I don't go out to a restaurant or a thousand other places alone. I just won't do it. I'm not saying I'm weak or I'm not saying I'm strong. I'm just saying I have a policy and I keep it. So Joseph runs out of the house and what do we find? 
She's left holding the coat, ah, the second time in his life that his coat will play a role in his condemnation. You know, first there was a, the coat that infuriated his brothers, and now this coat, it serves as evidence against him. So let's keep reading, verses 13 to 18. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, we live in a day in which a great many women have charged, and rightly so, that men in positions of power have used their advantage to gain sexual favors over women under them. And I think this point is well made. It's time for victims of sexual abuse to speak out. It's time to put the cold fear into the hearts of anyone who would want to sexually abuse another person. But part of my response to this is also, this is what happens in a sexually immoral culture. You know, back in the early days of the sexual revolution, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were singing, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. You want the translation of that? If your wife or husband is not around, have sex with the office secretary. And of course, a whole generation has drunk of that ethic. And here we are, with victims and anger and betrayal and with the angry response of many. I was abused. I, I was taken advantage of. I was mistreated. So what's the new ethic? Well, it's simply this. Don't have sex unless there is no imbalance of power and you have a way of proving that there is consent. Again, watch and wait until the betrayal, the anger, and the hurt comes out once again in the future. Uh, but he was a married man, they will say, and he was promising me so much, and I was now left all alone. And how much different is the world when one has a clear word from God, don't you think? God says sex is good when it happens within the godly confines of a lifelong commitment of marriage in which both sides promise to be faithful to only each other until death separates. Now then, but what if you have someone in a position of power who has the ability to harm you if you don't comply with their sexual demands? So listen to the biblical answer. Just say no. Run away. Leave the results to God. Remember, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is your God, that means he is using all his resources as God to your advantage. You trust in God to protect you. Just do the right thing. I know some of you are saying, well, how'd that work out for Joseph? You know, first he is sold into slavery, and we might say, well, look, God took care of him. In spite of his situation as a slave, God blessed him in his slavery. But now he's a slave to be sure. He's given a position of honor, and it becomes clear that although the situation is far from perfect, Joseph is still able to see the blessing of God. And then suddenly his world comes crashing down. You know, before he was at the bottom of the cistern as he was listening as his brothers were deciding what to do with him. And now shamefully he hears this aristocratic woman change what happened and slander his name. Having landed on his feet once and from suffering the first injustice now, he will fall one more time. Potiphar's wife tells a very interesting story. He was trying to seduce me and then to rape me, and I screamed out, and then he realized he was in trouble and he ran for his life. Indeed, by the time her husband comes home, she adds one more feature to the story. She actually blames her husband 
the Hebrew slave you bought. It's your fault. Had you been aware of his character, that would never have happened. And then one more thing. This Hebrew slave is mocking me and us. Attempted rape at that time was a capital offense. And it strikes me as profoundly interesting that Joseph is not sentenced to death here. Instead, Genesis 39 verses 19 to 20 says, As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Again, although you would have to search hard to find it, and yet here it is, grace. Joseph is in prison. I know there's no trial and there's no evaluation of the evidence. It's just a very easy, guilty verdict. Potiphar is angry and Joseph is in prison. Why wasn't he executed? Ah, that's where the grace comes in. You know, it might be that Potiphar knew his wife and that he had doubts about her story. Well, here it is. God is for him. Joseph has not died. Much grace was given him that day. God is overwhelmingly on Joseph's side. People of God, you must trust in God. You have to believe him when he says he's fighting for you and he's concerned for his own glory. There is a time to simply take him at his word and then to do no more. Keep on being faithful, keep on trusting, never stop believing. God is for us, who can be against us. Take it to heart and simply move forward. God will vindicate you in due time. John, I think there's something to be said that there's nothing new under the sun. Look at this woman who is using her position of power over somebody, and we see that time and time and time again on the news today, somebody who is dominating somebody else because of their position of power. Wow. You know, Ben, um, you're right. Nothing new is under the sun. And, uh, you know, sex and power have always gone together, um, and, and we know that. And so, you know, I want to say to somebody who has been sexually abused by a person in power that the Christian community needs to be compassionate towards you. Uh, we need to take your side. We need to walk with you, and we need to recognize your victimization. Uh, so I think that's one thing we want to say. Uh, this passage certainly speaks to that. This passage also speaks to those who are in a position of being victimized, that it is possible to make a stand. And I would encourage those individuals to put your hope in God and uh, watch God work on your behalf. God is for us, who can be against us. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us today right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, well, this month we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at one 800 663 
That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online back to the Bible.ca.